It takes all kinds, people. It takes all kinds. All right. Um, I'm going to read our scripture passage for us this evening. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses... Uh, We're actually going to be talking about verses 8 through 10 tonight, but we're going to get a running start and read 1 through 10. So Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, uh, says, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we close out our um, All Saints series, um, God, we ask that, again, um, that you would use um, these things to draw us closer to yourself, God. As we look at these scriptures, as we read and we talk about these, um, the things that you have done in the history of the church, that you have done through um, men and women in the history of church, God, we ask that these would be um, examples that we would look to, that would inspire us, God, not because we, we... Think that we can be those people, um, but God, things to to awaken us, uh, to stir us up, to push us out of our um, comfortableness and our, our laziness. God, um, we need you to stir us up. Um, we need you um, to fan the spark uh, in our hearts into a flame. And God, we ask that you would do that. Uh, We ask that you would work through the power of your Holy Spirit um, to shine light on the text that we're about to read, that we would read these words and that they would not just be empty words, but that you would apply these things to our hearts, um, and that through the work of your Holy Spirit, we would not only understand, uh, we would not only believe, but we would apply these things, um, and we would live in light of them. God, help us to do that. Help us to live lives that bring glory to you and honor to you. Uh, We love you. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, as has been the case with the other ones, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, and I don't know if I really got this thing all connected right. So um, what we're talking about this week is so we've been doing this series, this Great Great Awakening All Saints series. So we're in this this season of the year where we're remembering. We're remembering at Reformation Day. We're remembering at All Saints Day. We're remembering at Veterans Day. We're looking back at some of these great heroes of the faith, in particular the heroes of what was called the Great Awakening. And so we're talking about this great movement that God did in the history of the church called the Great Awakening. We've been looking at the specific emphases of 
the Great Awakening, um, things that we believe, things that we agree with, um, things that come from our evangelical heritage and we have, we have um, leaned into, you could say, or whatever. And so far we've talked about this. We talked about the first time, uh, week, we talked about Edwards and the idea of regeneration, what the Bible teaches about being born again. Um, last week we talked about um, another emphasis of the Great Awakening in, through the life of George Whitfield um, and this idea of evangelism and evangelistic preaching and, and, and calling people to be saved um, through Jesus Christ. And this week we're going to talk about Wesley and good works, okay, um, or Wesleyan activism. We talked about last week that, that definition of evangelicalism that consisted of four things. It consisted of being high emphasis on the Bible, high emphasis on the cross, high emphasis on conversion, and then the fourth thing was high, an, a, a high emphasis on activism. And activism is a bad word for it because of the connotations that it has in our current sort of society, right? That's, that, that is kind of a good word, but it can also kind of carry some baggage with it too. And so we're going to broadly just talk about that saying good works. It's the idea that our faith should change the way we live and that we should go out into the world and live in a different way and work in a different way um, for the good of ourselves and our communities and everybody around us. So here's the thing before we get going. Um, I could have easily talked about Wesley um, in terms, um, instead of Edwards when we talked about the new birth, right? Regeneration is, one of, is essential to all these guys. It was part of what they believed and what they were teaching. Um, each one has a personal testimony that demonstrates that concept of regeneration. Uh, their theologies emphasized personal regeneration, and so we could have used Wesley for that, but we didn't. Or I could have talked about Wesley and evangelism instead of Whitfield, right? Because Wesley was a phenomenal and gigantic preacher and evangelist in his own right. Um, he is only overshadowed, I think, by Whitfield because Wesley was a once-in-a-century kind of guy, and Whitfield was probably a once-in-a-millennium kind of guy, okay? But they were both gigantic figures um, in terms of evangelism and preaching. Uh, it's telling that Wesley didn't leave behind a systematic theology. Um, he actually didn't leave behind, or at least he's not known for, a set of biblical commentaries like maybe Calvin was or something. The thing that Wesley left behind is this set of sermons called the, the 50 Standard Sermons. And it's part of the Methodist Church. It's something that the Methodist Church has looked to to guide its thought and practice and, and theology. And so it makes sense that Wesley, what he left behind for, for perpetuity, you could say, was sermons, right? Because at the end of the day, I think we could say, and again, all these categories kind of mixed together, but we could say Edwards was a pastor theologian. Whitfield was an evangelist and a missionary, but Wesley was a preacher and he was a churchman, okay? And we don't use that phrase a whole lot anymore, a churchman, right? Somebody who cares about God's church and works to make sure that God's church is functioning and flourishing um, and things like that. And so I think that describes Wesley. Um, and one of Wesley's focuses as a preacher was the spiritual formation of his people, um, they're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that central idea for Wesley was this, is that our lives must be completely changed by the love of Christ. That the love of Christ is poured into our hearts, um, and that not only do we then love differently, but we think differently, we believe differently, and ultimately we act differently. And that's what we're getting at today when we talk about Wesley in good works. 
And that idea of an activist kind of faith, a faith that goes out and tries to do something, um, is one of the major elements that the Great Awakening um, focused on. Um, certainly, when we talk about good works, we're talking about personal good works, personal piety, you could say, right? Um, a faith um, that not only is working us internally in terms of good works, but again, a faith that is working externally, too, in terms of good works. Um, James, in the book of James, he warns us, right? Faith without works is dead, right? A faith that doesn't have accompanying works is not a faith at all. We are not saved by our works, but faith is accompanied by works. You always see works where there is true faith. And there is probably maybe nobody, at least out of the people that we've been talking about, who was a greater encourager and organizer to live out that kind of activist faith than John Wesley. So um, John Wesley was born in June 28, 1703. He had an upbringing that was probably more like Edwards than like Whitfield. Remember, we talked about Edwards was from a family of um, a religious family. Whitfield was probably from less of a religious family. But Wesley's family, um, he came from, a, from several generations of very faithful Christians. Both of his grandfathers were non-conforming pastors, which mean that when the Anglican church said, you have to be Anglican to preach in, in England, those guys said, no, we don't, and we're going to keep on preaching. And it cost them a lot. It cost them personal property. It cost them their pastorates. It even cost one of them imprisonment. He was imprisoned for being a non-conformist pastor. So he came from a line of, of faithful Christians who had sacrificed for the faith. His mother and father were both convictional conformists. They had made the decision later in life that said, we think the best way to live out our faith in England is to go back to the Anglican church and work through the means of the Anglican church. And so his father was a pastor um, there in England. Um, his mother's name was Susanna Wesley, and she is one of the great heroines of, of the Great Awakening and evangelicalism. She's just a neat, sassy, um, strong lady, okay? The relationship between her and her husband is hilarious, okay? There are just these great little encounters. She, she makes comments in her diary about how um, God decided that he was going to put two people who, like, were completely opposites together and then just sort of go, like, eh, see what happens. Um, that's the relationship between her and her husband. Um, but she's one of the great kind of heroines of the faith. She bore 19 children. Um, nine of which who died in infancy, but ten who survived until adulthood. Seven girls, three boys, including um, John Wesley and his brother Charles, um, who were both um, huge figures in the Great Awakening. His childhood, Wesley's childhood, was pretty uneventful except for one thing. When he was five years old, their parsonage burned. And he was the last person to be taken from the house. He was trapped in an upstairs bedroom while the rest of the house burned. And at the last minute, uh, they got a ladder to his bedroom window, and he was rescued as a five-year-old from the burning house, which collapsed you know, moments after he was re rescued from it. And so, obviously, people have looked back to that providential moment in the saving of, of Wesley, but Wesley himself looked back to it as a perfect illustration of what Jesus does when he saves us, that we are literally plucked from the fire, that we are brought out of a situation in which there is no hope and we are going to die, and then miraculously we are brought out of it. And that was sort of the picture that he had of salvation in his head. 
Um, he attended Oxford, like a bunch of these guys did. He got his master's. He was ordained as a pastor. And so while at Oxford, we talked about it with Whitfield, right? He joined this thing or created this thing called the Holy Club. And it was him and about 12 other dudes that got together, and they were like, we're going to be serious about living out our faith. And so they were austere and dedicated, and they were um, worshiping together and serving together and doing all these things. Um, in 1735, he embarks on a missionary sort of trip to America as a minister to evangelize there because he has these grand ideas that he's going to go to America and he's going to convert the Indians, right? Because the Indians are running around and, oh, they just want Jesus if somebody will just go and tell them about Jesus. Um, because, and the reason why he picked that job is, guess why? Because it's the hardcore thing to do, right? Because that's the kind of guy he was. He was like, you know what? Most people aren't willing to t- go across the ocean to evangelize the Indians, but I am because I'm hardcore in my faith, right? Um, that was sort of his attitude. Him and his holy club were doing these kind of things. But on the sea voyage over, something happens. They get into this huge storm, and the boat is rocking, and it's almost overturned and, and, and all this stuff. And Wesley, in that moment, is freaking out. And he's scared for his life. He's scared for his eternity. Um, he is doubtful of what will happen to him if the, if, if the um, ship sinks and he goes down. Um, and yet, at the same time, he looks across in the hold there in the ship, and there's a group of Moravians who is a sect of German Lutheranism. And they are just calm. They're singing hymns to each other, and they have a serenity and a faith that Wesley recognizes he doesn't have. Okay, And that's the beginning of God starting to work on Wesley's heart. Um, he gets to America, and it is a total disaster. All right, the whole thing. Um, the Indians are not converted. Turns out they don't really care, and they have no interest in coming to Jesus Christ, okay? He, he, that, that, it's not like what he thought. He thought they were just waiting and that nobody had ever been to him. And it turns out they weren't waiting, and people had been to them before. Um, so he didn't convert the Indians. The church didn't like him that he was serving at. Um, this is hilarious. He was crushing on this girl hardcore in the church, right? He proposes to her. She rejects him, and then he is, and he gets married to another guy. He is very vocal Pettily, so that's not a word. He's very petty about his vocal dislike for the other guys. Like, well, that guy's kind of a loser, and I'm writing it in my diary. I don't know why she married him when she could have had me. Um, and then a little bit later, he actually brings her under church discipline and refuses her the Lord's Supper because he says she's living in rebellion, uh, which is probably him just being um, a snot, okay? Um, maybe not. Maybe she was doing some bad stuff, but probably it's just him being kind of... Uh, a goofy kid, okay? Even though he's not really a kid anymore. That's the problem. Um, promptly, he left America. In fact, the log in the church said, arrived this day, ran away this day. Like the dude wrote, ran away in the log. Like he didn't say departed or went back to England. It said he ran away. Um, sort of recognizing the relationship that he had with the church. He gets back on the boat and he's and he's... And he's dejected, right? He's, he's looking at this whole experience and he's convinced that he's not a believer um, and he doesn't, uh, his faith is a, is a, is a sham. Um, he recognizes that he's missing something in his life. Um, Wesley realized that there was something um, missing, and that's where we'll start in this, in this chapter, right? Um, chapter 2 of Ephesians um, recognizes something, starting in verse 8. Wesley excelled in good works. Right? He was a hardcore dude. He denied himself. He was living conscientiously. He was serving the poor. He was ministering the church. He was going on mission trips, right? This is the guy who was doing a lot, but he recognized that his doing hadn't saved him, 
All right? He was not living in idleness. He was not living in frivolity. He was not a person who was like opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he also recognized that his works had not changed his heart. And that's the first thing we see in that Ephesians passage. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so before we talk about the necessity of good works in our lives, it's good to remind ourselves of the place of works in the economy of God's salvation. We say it all the time. We are going to continue to say it all the time because it is the gospel. You are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your goodness. You are not saved by what you do. You are saved by Jesus Christ and what he has done in your place. That may be old hat to some of you, but I hope not because it's the gospel, right? And we will continue to say that and continue to preach that and continue to remind you of that for hopefully all of time because it's what we base our entire faith around. Um, Jesus has worked and you have received. Your salvation is holy of grace. Okay, so the foundation of our good works, which is what we're talking about today, stand on the foundation of God's good works in the gospel for us. And that's what Ephesians 1 through 9 is getting at. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Okay. Wesley understood the gospel, okay? Again, he was a pastor. He was a minister. He'd been through seminary. Like, he wasn't somebody who didn't understand the gospel, but he had not received it at this point. He had not received the gospel when he went to America and and then came back. The next summer, he comes back, and, and the next summer, he's in England, in London. And by his own admission, he begrudgingly goes to a Bible study on Aldersgate Street in London, all right? Um, his brother providentially had been converted also just three days before this at another Bible study. And so it's neat that God seems to have just sort of gone, and here we go, right? And he, and he starts this thing all at once. Um, while he's at this Bible study, um, there is the, the teacher is reading from Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, and Wesley is converted during this Bible study. And he says something in one of his journals later about the experience, a phrase that goes down into Christian history and becomes sort of a catchphrase for, for evangelicalism. And that he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And from then on, he knew that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He knew that he had been regenerated. That phrase, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and the, the name Aldersgate Street, Aldersgate, become almost like... Um, uh, it's like when we talk about uh, somebody has a Damascus Road experience or something like that. Like people would talk about and say, I had an Aldersgate experience, right? I had this moment where all of a sudden God confirmed to me that I was one of his children. Um, and he changed me and I was regenerated. And that was sort of like a, that was, that was something that people would say and knew. We don't, we don't hear that, I think, in broadly in evangelicalism. Maybe still in the Methodist church in some cases, but, but not in general. But here's the deal. Wesley was 35 years old when this happened. Okay, he was an ordained minister, but he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. He was not a believer. Okay, and then all of a sudden he has changed, and we never stop. We never get to a point where God is done with us. Okay, we talked about this with Semper Reformanda three three weeks ago, right? Um, God is working on you now. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter where you're at in your faith. He is currently working on you. All right? And he may yet do incredible, life-altering 180 things in your life and faith. 
Um, he is doing that in all of our lives. And here's what I wonder. I wonder if sometimes we would not almost be ashamed for God to work that way in our lives. We would be embarrassed to be 35 or 40 or 45 or 50 and all of a sudden be wrecked by God um, and our lives be changed in some way. Because it would almost be like we would say, oh, man, I should have known this stuff by now, so I don't want to act like I'm you know, getting too involved. God may at any moment wreck your life. He may at any moment change you and make you into a different person. You may already be a believer, but he may change your vocation. He may change your direction in life. He may change what you're involved in. At any moment, he could do that. God is, all of our lives, fashioning us, right? He is making us into people that will glorify him in our, with our lives. And one of the primary ways that we glorify him is by the good works that he has made for us to do. Okay, And that's what we see in the next part of that Ephesians uh, chapter 2 passage. Paul says this, he says, We are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. Okay, So th- this is what it's getting at. Good, good works... Our good works bring glory to God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? When, when we live in good works and when God um, works these good works in us and others see these good works, it brings glory to God. And Paul uses this interesting word, workmanship. Okay? It's only used two places in the Bible. It's the Greek word poema. Okay, and guess what poema where we get what word we get? It's where we get our word poem. Okay, and it, that gives us a picture of what we're talking about. Is that it, the only other place it's used in all of scriptures in Romans chapter one, um, where God is talking about the whole created order, like the glory and beauty and intricacy and planning of the cosmos. Okay, he uses that word of all of the universe, and then he uses this word of you and your heart, and your soul, and your life. And so what's he saying? The picture is this. God is an artisan, right? He is a craftsman. And he is fashioning your life, not to be some common instrument, not to be this rough, pragmatic, functional thing, right? But to be a masterpiece, to be this epic poem, you could say, for his glory. And the detail, the artistry, the skill that he puts into your life is good works. Okay? So the things that you are being gilded with, the things that you are being adorned with, the things that you are being decorated with to show God's infinite artistry is good works. Okay? Colossians 1.10 So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects How do we do that? How do we please him in all respects? How do we walk in a manner worthy of him? By bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right Right there, that's two things. That is the piety that we talked about earlier, and it is the external good works. Right, Growing in the knowledge of God and bearing fruit in every good work. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, For such is the will of God that by doing right... You may silence the ignorance of foolish men, right? Not only are our works glorifying God, but they are bringing other people to see who God is and therefore glorifying God. Now, we recognize, um, or we might categorize, good works in different ways. Like, you might talk about different kinds of good works. Wesley has an interesting theology here, right? And that's what I'm, I'm just going to kind of mention it real quick. 
His understanding, like we said a minute ago, puts love at the center of our spiritual life and growth, right? The thing that most changes us is God has loved us, and that love is put in us, right, in, in Jesus Christ, and that begins to change us. And the first thing that that does in us, the first way we start living out that love is, is basically something like we would call the fruits of the Spirit, right? That love changes our character, and all of a sudden we become people who are, you know, have joy, uh, how's it, let's see here, I've got to sing it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Um, we become those people, whose characters are different, whose hearts are different, you could say. But then that heart change begins to work outward, and it works outward in two different ways. It works outward in works of service, and it works out in works of piety. So again, like we said earlier, works of piety would be things that we would think of like spiritual disciplines. So it would be reading your Bible, studying your Bible, listening to preaching, praying, uh, meditating, um, uh, prayer, uh, fasting, right? They would be spiritual practices that are focused, in a sense, inward, right? They're things that we are doing to grow in, in the knowledge of God, right? But then there are also these acts of service that we go. That's another outgrowth of this love that is in our hearts. And there are physical services that we can provide, so feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick. But there are also spiritual services that we can provide, so instructing the ignorant, um, comforting the afflicted, praying for other people, um, but here's what's interesting about Wesley that just makes him a little bit distinct, I think. Um, Wesley prioritizes service over piety. Okay? Wesley says that if you had to make a choice, and he's not saying one's unimportant or anything. He's saying they're both necessary. We have to do both of them. But if you're put in a situation where you have to pick one or the other, you pick service over piety. So, for example, something that happens about twice a year at Pleasant Grove Mother Church, somebody breaks down in our parking lot on a Wednesday night, right before church service. And so there's this question, what do you do? Do you stay out here and help this guy get his car going? Or do you go in to the, the worship and the singing and the praying and the, and the study or whatever? What's the answer? Which one do you do? Well, Wesley would say you go help the guy first. Right, that that is the first thing that you would do. That we that we act first in terms of service. The reason why I say that that's interesting is because I think for probably certainly from the Reformed camp and many people who are Bible nerds, that's not the way we're geared. Okay, like we would we would more likely go and sit down somewhere and have a Bible study than we would just get out there and go out and serve. But but Wesley is saying this. He's saying the first instinct of our hearts ought to be to serve. All right. And again, both are necessary, not diminishing either of them. If somebody says we only serve and we don't do the other thing, they're wrong. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying if you had to pick between the two, do the service first and come to the piety later. Um, so the question is this, are we allowing God to adorn us with good works? Or are we looking out to a world and saying, I don't have time for that, um, I, I don't, I, I'm not interested in going out and getting dirty, spending time, missing out on things to help others um, when I could go do this other thing um, that is maybe in some ways more focused on me. That's the distinction, okay? But he's saying we are being adorned with these good works, and we have to live in them and work towards them because it's something that God is doing in us. Um, before we move on, maybe past that verse, notice one more thing. Who is God's workmanship? Who is God engraving? Who is he detailing um, with good works? Well, the answer is, is that first word, we. 
is who he's doing these things to, right? He is adorning us with good works. He is not adorning elders or pastors with good works. He's not just adorning deacons with good works. He's not just adorning ministry leaders or missionaries with good works. He is adorning all of us with good works. He has created these works ahead of time for us to live in. And so whenever we say, I can't do that, or I'm not comfortable with that, we are essentially saying, God, I know that you were going to put something on me that was really beautiful, that would bring glory to you, but no thanks, right? I don't want you to do that work in my life. Um, I want you to just kind of leave me alone. I'd rather be plain and do my own thing than be gilded and, and bring you more glory through these things, okay? And so that's the picture that we have. The Bible's full of people who do that, right? The Bible's full of people who are trying to explain to God why they can't do what God has called them to do. Moses or Jeremiah, um, there's lots of characters in Scripture that do that. But God can, and he is, right? We are his workmanship. He is doing these things. He is working these things in our lives. And that's why the Bible talks about these things both as, these are these are kind of, words that we don't hear a lot, as indicatives and imperatives. Like he says, these are things that are taking place in your life, and these are things that you must do. And so you're sort of like, well, which one is it? Is God doing this in me, or am I doing it? And the answer is yes, right? Both are the case. God is working these things in our lives, and he is leading us into these things. It's a both-and situation. Okay, so, so this idea that we are responsible for these things. We talked about this last week about the innovation of open-air preaching, but there were lots of other innovations that came during the, the Great Awakening, too. And one of those um, that Wesley kind of pushed, that bucked convention, that angered the establishment, um, has everything to do with this idea that we are all called. And that was the idea of lay ministry, okay? Wesley pushed lay ministry, and what I mean by that is he was wanting ministry to be done by people who aren't ordained and do that as their vocation, right? So Wesley was a guy who was, who was getting people out there to do different things, okay? Um, he, he would take men who were not university educated. They weren't seminary educated. Um, they didn't have any official training from the church. They didn't have an official commission by the church, but Wesley would commission them, right? And he would say, you obviously have a heart for the lost. You have a desire to evangelize. You have um, a boldness to go out and preach. And so, you know what? You're it. Go to this town over here that I don't, haven't gotten to yet. And you go be the evangelist for that town. And he mentored these guys and he gave them structure and accountability. And then he sends them out. And he says, I know you're not an official pastor, but go do the work that God has called us to. Because we are all um, uh, uh, called to these things. Um, women took in, uh, ministry roles, okay? Now, again, not official ordained church roles or whatever. But, but Wesley basically says, that's okay. You don't have to have an ordained position in a church to go out and do what God has called you to do. Go out and serve. Go out and, and, and start some organization that works against some issue uh, in the wor uh, world. Go out and teach other women and, and have Bible studies. His mother was a classic person for this. There was one time in his childhood where she started having a Bible study at her house, which was 
attracting more people than the Sunday service was when her husband was out of town. And the, the associate pastor was kind of like, hey, tell your wife to stop doing this thing because it's kind of stealing my thunder. And she was all like, oh, I'll do it, but what I need you to do, husband, I will submit to your will, but I need you to write me a letter that commands me to desist from this Bible study so that on the day of judgment when I stand before Jesus Christ, I can say I was doing what my husband told me to do. And that's the kind of relationship they had, right? Um, because it's, 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 he, this was modeled in his household just by the way his family was, right? He had seven sisters, probably many, many of whom who were strong believers. Um, uh, Wesley had other women in his life like that. Selena, who was the Countess of Huntington, which is a region there in, in England, was one of his greatest supporters and ministry backers. She was a woman who used her wealth and privilege not for her own um, benefit, but to push causes of ministry, right? Um, under Wesley's direction, the Methodist Church became a leader in many of the social issues of the day, including prison reform and probably most um, obviously the abolition of slavery. And, and that's one of those, the, those things that we're talking about as we go through this. Evangelicals have always had a tradition of that because we believe that our faith should work towards the, the good um, of, of the world around us. And so whether it is prison reform or medical care or trade unions or the alcohol industry or the abolition of slavery or the abolition of child labor, foster care, abortion, establishment of orphanages, sex trafficking, evangelicals have been on the leading edge of all of those movements, right? They have been the ones who are saying something must be done about these things because these things are a detriment to the good and flourishing of humanity. And so we're going to work against these things. The difference between liberals and evangelicals is this, is that liberals tend to say we should work for the good of the world. You don't have to tell people the gospel, though. Just take the gospel part out. Let's not worry about the gospel. Let's just do good for people. Whereas evangelicals have always said, just like we see in Ephesians, no, the foundation of our good works is the gospel. You can't separate the gospel from good works any more than you could um, separate somebody's heart um, from the rest of their body and expect them to keep on going on and living. That's not the way it works. Um, we say that we have to have the gospel as the foundation for our good works. But in and out of those good works, we will live in them. But again, realize is that sometimes the trap that we fall into is because we look at people who are saying, you should do these good works apart from the gospel, and then we buck them and we reject them and say, no, that's not right. I'm going to do the gospel without the good works. And that's the way we end up living. And the answer is, no, that's not right either, man. We're supposed to do both of these things. Be people who are about the gospel and about good works. Because what we find at the end of this passage is this, that in a very real sense, although it may be a little bit of an exaggeration, good works are the goal of our faith. All right, look at the next part passage. He says, we are created in Christ Jesus for these good works that what? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? That God has preordained these works for us. That he has set these things up in eternity past and said, when you become followers of me, then I have already set these things up that I want you to do, that I want you to live out. Okay? And so in a very real sense, we could say the Bible is saying this. He always intended our faith to lead to good works. He always intended our faith to lead to his glory by us being adorned with good works. There is a pernicious idea, especially in Reformed theology, I think, 
um, that says something like this. It says, you know what? We recognize that our lives are all of grace, right? That it's all about grace that, that we are saved. And that means that God is happy to save us in our awfulness. And therefore, we should stay broken, and stay sinful, and stay infant-like, right? Because then that gives God more glory because he gets to save us more, right? The worse we are, God just keeps on showing grace and grace and loving us, and Jesus has died for us. God just keeps on being more glorified in his sacrifice, and we, we continue to be the people we are. And that's baloney, right? That is garbage. That is not what God is calling us to, and this passage is evidence of that. God is glorified by our good works. God is glorified by us maturing in the faith and growing in the faith and knowing more about him and becoming more like Jesus. Not the other way around. It doesn't take from God's glory that we live more like Christ, right? We're not robbing from his grace. We're not sitting here saying, oh, cool, the better I get, the less I need Jesus. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, no, it's all about Jesus, okay? All of it's about Jesus. We make God more glorious, or he is seen to be more glorious by our good lives. You see this all through scripture and we skip over it oftentimes. Second Timothy chapter three. It's the passage that we always talk about when we're talking about the authority of scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's where we end a lot of times. But what's the rest of the passage? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Right? So it's almost like we stop with the inspiration of Scripture when it's like the inspiration of God has given us this authoritative standard so that we would know how to live, so that we would know how to glorify him in our good works. 2 Corinthians 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Right? So the idea is what? That God has provided everything you need so that you can live the life that he has called you to. He's not sitting there going, I've given you this ample holiness and resources so that you continue to be garbage. Okay? He says, no, I've given you everything you need so that you can be Christ-like. Okay? So live Christ-like lives and live lives that bring glory to God. You were created to glorify God, and we glorify him when we live lives of good work. We'll close on this illustration, and it's a, it's a perfect picture of this idea of activism in Wesley's life. Wesley knew that we were called to do God do things, right? To honor God, whether that is in big things, whether that is in little things, whether it's in the way we love and raise our children, or whether it's in the way that we start movements that change the world. But in all these things, good things, right? He's calling us to do good deeds. And it is an interesting coincidence of history that the very last letter that John Wesley ever wrote from his deathbed, six days before he died, was written to a man named William Wilberforce. Now, I don't know if you know that name, but William Wilberforce was the man who was probably most responsible for the abolition of the slave trade in England um, during the late 1700s, okay? And so the last thing that Wesley ever wrote was to the man who is starting the fight and leading the charge to abolish the slave trade in England, okay? And he wrote this to him. He said, Dear Sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy 
which is the scandal of religion of England and of the human race. He's talking about slavery. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, then who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Right? And so on his deathbed, he is still saying, um, Wilberforce, Wilberforce was an evangelical Christian, if you didn't know that also. He was saying, this is good and right, right? Our faith calls us to fight against the evil that we see in the world, to go out there and do something about it, okay? Always connected to the gospel, but to live out our life in faith and good works, all right? And so that's what we see. Paul, uh, uh, Wesley is quoting in that letter this, this last passage that we'll close with in Galatians chapter 6. He says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the charge that we have, to go out and do good to all people, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Right? Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you have called us. You have adorned us. You have fashioned us into vessels of good works. God, you have fashioned us to be people who are growing and maturing and becoming more like Jesus. God, not only internally, not only in the things that you have called us to in terms of your word and prayer and church and worship, God, but you have called us to go into all the world, um, that you have called us to go and be ministers of reconciliation, we read the other week. God, that we are... We are here to say to the world, be reconciled to God and receive the goodness and blessing that he has. God, we are oftentimes lax in these things. God, we, it is easy to turn inward, to focus on ourselves, to focus on our own families, to focus on our own groups and our own cliques and our own, even our own church, and to, to just kind of huddle around each other. And God, there is much good and much ministry to be done among us. And so we're not casting that down. We're just asking that you would continue to open our eyes to the things around us that we need to be working towards. Uh, that you would open our eyes to opportunities of need, um, people who are hurting around us, larger issues that are at play um, that, God, we can have a hand in, that we can have a voice in um, um, to bringing those things um, to light and to bringing the goodness and grace um, of Jesus Christ in those situations. God, we want to be a people who are adorned. We want to be a people who bring you glory by the way we live our lives. Help us to do that. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.